You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them there. This morning, we're going to continue our study uh, through the book of Philippians. I ask you to forgive my cold and if my voice sounds really weird. It sounds weird to me. Uh, I sound like I'm in a cave to me. But um, hopefully you can bear with me this morning as I snivel and blow stuff out of my nose. Um, and uh, we try to work through this uh, together. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 through 18, picking it up where we left off last week. And again, verse 12 starts with the word, therefore. And so as we have noticed through our study in the word of God, we know that when there's a word, therefore, that we have to look at the context of what was being spoken of before that. And What was being spoken of that we looked at last week was the humiliation, the condescension of Jesus, that he took on human flesh and that he was willing to take our sin upon us, that he humbled himself even to the point of death and even the death of the cross. And so the humility of Christ, which brings us all the way back to the beginning of chapter two, where we're told to not look out for our own interests only, but also for the interests of others to humble ourselves, to let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but to have the lowliness of mind. And so that's been our context. And then we saw Jesus as the example of that last week. And so now he says, therefore, in light of that, my beloved, Paul had such a heart for people. His beloved, this term of endearment, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And so I want us to notice three things in our text this morning. First of all, the, the, the theme of our text, I believe, is growth. We've been looking at joy in our study in Philippians, joy in different things. And this morning, we're going to see joy in growth, in, in three ways in which Paul explains that. First of all, grow by yielding and grow by shining and then grow by giving. And so the first thing, grow by yielding, verses 12 and 13, which are verses that are probably very familiar to you, but verses that we must see as connected. We cannot take verse 12 apart from verse 13. When we do, we throw things all into a tailspin. Or if we take verse 13 and forget about verse 12. These things go together. What we find here is man's responsibility and God's sovereignty and God's enablement together. It's a beautiful balance. As he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And the first thing I want us to, to see here in growing by yielding is that Paul is encouraging them to work out their salvation, to honor the Lord, to obey the Lord, to do the things that he has been encouraging them to do in this book, whether he's there or not whether someone is looking or not. And I think that's really important for us. 
especially in the new year when we make all kinds of New Year's resolutions, most of which don't last beyond, you know, January 3rd or 4th. But we make all kinds of commitments. And here's a a good commitment, I think. And that is to be a person of integrity and a person of character no matter who is watching. Because I think it's very easy for us to put on sort of a happy face, a a Christian face when we're around people uh, at church, when when we're around people who we think, uh, you know, we need to to do that with. But but then when no one's looking or when we're around people that don't care, then then we sort of let down that that guard. We 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 put off that integrity. We we're, we shirk that character, and that is really a tragedy. Character is really seen and is really made evident by how we act and how we live when no one is looking. And, and that's what Paul is, is saying here, that my beloved, as you've always obeyed, he was, he was so stoked for, for the fact that they were a people, this church in Philipp, Philippi, they were people who loved God and they were obedient. But there were some things that were beginning to creep in to this church. And Paul is saying, look, Finish strong. Continue to live for Jesus whether I'm there or not. And then he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so he, he gives them an exhortation that this salvation that they already have, he says, your own salvation. So this isn't salvation as in that you're working toward acceptance by God or somehow that we have to do good works in order for God to love us or or to allow us entrance into his kingdom that's not what he's talking about here in terms of salvation he says your own salvation this was the church these people were saved they they knew Jesus so he's not talking about working toward salvation Because that would fly in the face of everything that Paul has taught in the book of Ephesians and Galatians when he's told us that it's not about our works, it's not by the law, it's not in our own efforts. So what is he saying here? Work out your own salvation. Well, clearly he's saying the salvation that you already have, the fact that you're already saved, what's in your heart needs to be worked out of your life. It needs to be evident It needs to be demonstrative. People need to be able to see it, to tangibly take hold of what God has done in your life. And he's encouraging them, work out your salvation. This idea that Christianity or that God or that Jesus is a private thing. How often have we heard that? Oh, I don't really talk about that. It's private. And I remember when I first came to Christ, I kind of had that, that mindset because I was a, wasn't sure what was going on and, and it was just like, it was almost amazing to me that I even believed. It's hard for me to explain, but I, I never, ever would have thought that I would become a Christian. And so when, when the Lord got a hold of my heart, it was like I wasn't, at the first few days, I wasn't so sure of how to express it or if I should even tell anybody. And I remember my mom asking me because my whole family got saved about the same time. My mom asked me, you know, Ryan, have you, have you asked Jesus into your life? And I, and I told her yes. And she's like, well, I'm going to tell a whole bunch of people. And I said, no, no, I don't want anybody to know. It's a private thing. You know, well, quickly, shortly thereafter, the Lord showed me, no, it's not a private thing. It's a very public thing. It's, it's a very open and demonstrative, tangible thing that people ought to be able to see in our life. And that's what Paul is encouraging them, is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There ought to be some fear and some trepidation and some trembling over our conduct and how we're living our life that we would be evaluating our life. 
there, there's a point where I think you can do too much introspection, certainly. There's a point where, where you're looking within way too much and, and you get bogged down and depressed. And, and I'm a person that, that is pretty introspective and I, have, I evaluate way too much. Um, and, and I, you know, analyze things. It's just, just the way I am. And it's, it's sometimes not good. You can, you can get really discouraged and, and you can get overly uh, analytical about things. But I think that sometimes we're not introspective enough. We just kind of go through life and, and we don't really even care what's going on. And, and we just sort of coast along in this apathetic kind of existence. And I don't think that's what God would have for us either. Clearly what he's saying here is that we need to, with fear and trembling evaluate the way that we're living our life and see if we're working out the salvation that is in our hearts. And I think a great test is to evaluate the people in your life. And if you were to ask them, is Jesus the number one priority of my life? Do I model Jesus? When you look at me, when you watch me, when you're around me, is salvation being worked out of me? Is it very evident that I'm a Christian? And if you were to sort of ask people in your life, what would they say? And I think many of us probably know the answer without even asking them. Many of us probably know what people would say. Is is Jesus being worked out of our life? Are we proactively desiring to work out the salvation that's been worked into our heart? You see, you guys, it's, it's really very sad when, when people know Jesus and, and they, they follow Jesus simply for, you know, some kind of fire insurance, some kind of... Uh, a way to escape hell, but, but have no desire to really pursue a relationship with him. And that's really falling short of what Jesus came to do. When we read in verses 5 through 11 of the condescension of Christ, and we read in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't simply the joy that we wouldn't have to endure hell. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. That's the negative side of it, that we wouldn't go to hell, the mercy of God. But there's the positive side of it as well, that we would enjoy a relationship with him. That's the grace that we receive what we don't deserve. And so you guys, Jesus has much more for us than just freedom from judgment. He has a relationship in mind for you and for me. He wants that. He longs for that. He's reaching out to you and to me this morning saying, look, I want you to experience eternal life today. I want you to experience me each and every day. I want you to work out your salvation not just have it in your heart and it's this little private thing between you and God and, and once in a while you think about it and, and when you're really down, you read the Bible and when you're really hurting, you pray. No, it's daily, it's constant, it's a relationship, it's living, it's active. And it's a struggle sometimes and you're wrestling with God about things and you're questioning God and you're asking Him things and you're growing in your relationship with the Lord. It's a relationship. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, many people would want to just leave it right there and have it be all about man's responsibility. Hey, brother, hey, sister, you better be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But see, if we leave it right there, we miss out on the balance Because in verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so here's the balance. We see human responsibility. Work it out. There's 
a part for us to play, certainly. We have a responsibility. But then there's divine enablement. He says, it is God that is working in you. And so we're working out what's already been worked in. We're yielding. That's where this growing by yielding comes in. We simply yield ourselves. I think, is the message here. That our main responsibility is to say, God, I want to grow. God, I desire, I long to work out this salvation. I want to have a thriving and growing and living relationship with you. I want my Christianity to be something that is tangible and visible and something that other people can see and experience. I want to work it out. Lord, I'm willing. Here I am. Like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Here I am, Lord, send me. He was willing wasn't anything of his own strength or effort, but there's a willingness on your part. That's our responsibility. But then it is God who does the work. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. What does it tell us? That we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which have been prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. These works have already been prepared. We just are willing and available to allow God to work them out in our life. That's divine enablement balanced with human responsibility. And notice that it's God who works in you both to will and to do. And so in actuality, it's even God who gives us the will and the desire to do His will and desire. It is God that works in us both to will and to do. Guys, we have nothing apart from the Lord. It's even Him that gives us the desire to grow and to learn and to have our faith worked out in us. It's God that does this work in us. And it's God who wills it and it's God who does it to do for his good pleasure. He is the one that is going to work it out in us. We cannot drum this up in our own strength. I think that was what the Galatian believers were trying to do. They believed in Jesus. They had a relationship with Jesus, but then there was this desire, this thought that it's kind of a relay race where Jesus is now handing me the baton And I run the last leg. I'm like the anchor man on this relay race. And that is totally bogus. Jesus doesn't hand us a baton. The race was already won. There was no relay. We simply are running in a completed battle. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we are more than conquerors. That means that we won the battle before it even started. That's why I'm really excited about our study on Wednesday nights in Joshua. It's all about victory. It's all about laying claim to that which Jesus has laid before us and said, here, it's yours. Take it. And that's where human responsibility comes in. Are we going to? Are we going to step out? Or are we going to be like the Israelites who, given all this land, said, no, we're content with this little bit. It's all we want. Even though it was all given to them, they, they really only took hold of a very small portion of that. It's a huge picture of how we live our Christian life. Just being content with a little bit, being content with where we're at, just saying, you know what, this is good. I'm, I'm cool here. I'm comfortable here. And God says, no, I want to enlarge your borders. I, I want to stretch you. I want to expand you. I want to produce fruit in you that will absolutely blow your minds. But we have to be willing to do that. And that's where yielding comes in, to grow by yielding. If we want to grow in 2008, here is the key that will yield to God. That will say, God, here I am. Do your work in me. Nothing held back. My heart is laid open. 
I'm completely vulnerable to you. I'm, I'm not at all closed off to anything you want to do in my life. You guys, when we say that to the Lord, that is such an awesome thing for him because he knows that he can just work through us. That's what holds us back is our lack of yieldedness, our lack of willingness, our lack of faith. The, the Israelites did not enter in to all of the promises of God simply because they didn't trust. They didn't yield their lives to him. They didn't believe that he had their best interests in mind. So often we hold things back because we're not quite sure if God can handle it. Lord, I've given you the parts of my life that I'm comfortable with, but that's it. I'm going to hold on to these things because I'm not sure what you're going to do. And we do that because we don't trust. When we don't trust people, then we, we, we're not vulnerable to them. When we don't trust people, then we don't think they have our best interests in mind. And so if, if you've been struggling in that area, you need to, to get alone with the Lord. You need to, to recognize, as we sang this morning, that he is gracious, he's compassionate, he's good to us. He has your best interests in mind. He wants to bless you. And you need to be willing to allow him to do that. Grow by yielding. Allow God to work in you so that you can work it out. The second thing is to grow by shining, verses 14 through 16. He, he now begins to, to be specific with how we can work out this salvation. How we can show people what Jesus has done in our hearts. That it would be a, a real easy thing for people to perceive and to notice that Jesus is at work in you. That you're working out what Jesus has done in your heart and it's really evident and these are some ways that that can happen. The first thing, do all things without complaining and disputing. If we want to be people that are working out our salvation, if we want to be people that are showing Jesus to the lost world around us, if we want people to tangibly take hold of Jesus's work in our life, here's the first thing we can do. Don't complain and don't argue. Because complaining and arguing are very common things in the world, they're very common to our flesh. And so when we do it, it doesn't strike people weird at all. But when we don't do it, it really strikes people weird. When you're the only one at work who isn't complaining about the boss or about the work that you're asked to do or about your hours or the schedule or any of those sorts of things, when you're the only one that isn't in the break room complaining, people will notice that. It's one of those things that you don't even have to do anything and people will take notice of the fact that you're not doing something. When you don't complain, people will notice. When we're not complaining about the things in our life that most people complain about, when you're going through difficulty and you're not complaining about it to your unsaved family, they notice that. When you're not complaining about your spouse to your unsaved friends or family or coworkers and everyone else is, everyone else uses the break room or the fishing trip to just absolutely rail on their spouse and you don't do that, people take notice. And they think, wow, why, why don't they do that? 
And that is an opportunity for us to work out our salvation. If you're a person that complains, know this, that your complaints are not about your work or about your spouse or about your family or about the town you live in or about the house you reside in or about your kids or anything else. Your complaints are about God. Your problem is not with those things. Your problem is with God. And, and I sit down with people in counseling and, and, and they'll talk about things like that and they'll complain about things. And, and sometimes I'll stop them and I'll say, okay, I want you to understand something here. You need to understand this, that your problem is not with this person. Your problem is with God. And it kind of, it, it, it ticks them off sometimes Oh, but it's kind of a wake-up call to, you know what? It's right. He's right. My problem isn't with those things because my problem is with the Lord who allowed those things in my life. He put me in the family that I was born into. He, he allowed me to marry that person. Maybe you shouldn't have. Maybe that was your, your, a problem to begin with people that marry unsaved spouses when they're saved. You know, there's, there's problems there that were just of your own. But you, you get the idea that, that in reality, our problem is with God. And so when we're complaining like the Israelites did, and that's what really Paul is referring to because they would have been very familiar with that story. The Israelites mumbling and grumbling all the way through the desert no water, no food. We want to go back to Egypt. And Moses just finally had enough of it and, you know, just beat the snot out of the rock because it was just like, you know what, people, I can't take it anymore. God, fortunately, is, is gracious and, and compassionate. But you know how complaining just gets on your nerves after a while, even though we do it too? But when somebody... Maybe one of your kids is just complaining all the time. Think about hearing just millions and billions of complaints all at the same time. I don't know how God does it. I, I, I don't really know how God does it. You know, I, I think it was Bono from U2 that said that Christians are really hard to tolerate and he doesn't even know how Jesus puts up with them. It, it's, it's, a good, it's a good quote because... It's like, how in the world does God put up with all of our complaining? I can't even handle my two kids on a road trip complaining, you know, to, for a few hours. How does he listen to all these things and, and yet still be gracious? And I don't know the answer to that. It's because he's good and he's awesome and he's loving. But this is a good word for us. Do all things without complaining. We need to repent of that. If that's a part of your life, if you've been complaining a lot lately, ask God to forgive you. Ask God to, to show you the, the area of your heart that needs to be changed so that you can get to the root of the problem. See, we often address the fruit of the problem. Just like we do when we're sick. You know, we take... Sudafed, which I've been taking much of lately. We, we take problem and, you know, it helps for four hours and then we got to take more of it, but we're, we're really not getting to the root of the problem. And, and that's what we do spiritually a lot as well. There's, there's the fruit, which is complaining, but there's a root issue that you need to deal with. And typically it's something that has gone awry in your relationship with Jesus. And you need to fix that, have him fix that so that you're not a person that's complaining all the time, that's murmuring, grumbling, whining. Woe is me, you know. Or arguing, that's probably a, a better word than disputing. We don't really use the word disputing. We use the word arguing. And, and thankfully, in, in our church, uh, we don't have a lot of arguments about doctrine or arguments about what color we ought to paint the walls or what color carpet we ought to have or, you know, moving things around. People don't get bent out of shape. Uh, and and thank, thank God for that. But, you know, in a, in a lot of uh, places, uh, that happens. 
People are arguing about silly stuff and churches are dividing over the, the most minuscule and ridiculous things. You have two churches that, that believe almost exactly the same except they believe that the piano ought to be on the right-hand side of the church and this church believes it ought to be on the left and they divide over that and start two new churches. And, and, and that's not even far-fetched. And so when the world looks on at that, when the world looks on at, at Christians bickering and arguing about silly things and dividing over silly things and not being able to agree to disagree about some of these smaller things. In other words, that we can find unity even in the midst of, of some diversity. Yeah, you know, I don't really prefer to worship that way, but I love you guys and I don't judge you and we don't look down on you. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. Or, you know what? I prefer not to use some of those modern translations of the Bible. I don't really think that they're that accurate. But we know that God protects his word and and so we're not going to divide over that silly stuff. But I mean, we've had people come to our outreaches when we're handing out Bibles that are the New Living Translation, we've had people come and get in our face and tell us that we're sending people to hell because we're giving out a translation other than the the King James. And I think the world looks on at that and says, what is that all about? And why would I want to be a part of that? And so, you guys, we, we have to be very careful that we aren't arguing about silly things, that we aren't dividing from other believers over ridiculous things. Now, there are some, some hills that I'm willing to die on. The essentials of Christianity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the validity and the inerrancy of the word of God, the Trinity, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those are things that we are willing and should go to war over because they're important and they change the historicity of the Christian faith and the validity of the Christian faith. But there's a lot of gray areas that it's just not even important to talk about. And in, in my earlier years of of being a Christian, I, you know, I was sort of, I grew up in a family that, w- that was very, you know, argumentative. I mean, we just, we argued about a lot of stuff and, you know, you didn't take somebody's word for it. You kind of, you know, proved your point and argued about things. And my mom and I had that kind of a relationship. And so, you know, it just sort of seemed very natural as a Christian that, you know, I wouldn't just take somebody's word and, and if I didn't like what you said or believed, then I'm going to argue with you about it. And, and God began to, you know, and is still doing that work in my life where it's just like, you know what, I don't really care. I mean, I remember sitting up for all hours during Bible college with just these, you know, crazy guys uh, talking about things that I wouldn't even probably spend five minutes discussing today. And, you know, just sitting there till two, three in the morning talking about minutia. And, and both of us walking away not having any difference of opinion. Do you ever notice that? That you can argue with somebody for hours and you walk away and you haven't changed your mind and they haven't changed their mind. And one thing I've realized is that People's minds aren't going to be changed in one conversation. And we just, if, if somebody has uh, an issue that they need to deal with, the Lord's going to do that work. And it's not going to do any, us any good to argue with them about it. And, and oftentimes, when we just present our opinion humbly and say, you know what? That's, that's cool. I understand where you're coming from. And, and maybe we pray together and we just walk away that the Lord is able to use that 
in a much greater way than he is this constant, you know, going back and forth where you're not even really listening to the person. All you're thinking about is what you're going to say after they get done. And it's fruitless. It's meaningless. And so do all things without complaining and disputing or arguing. Man, let that be a resolution for us for 2008. What a, what a great, great goal to do all things without complaining and arguing. That, here's the result, you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And so this, this point here is to grow by shining. And the first thing was to do all things without complaining and arguing that we might become blameless and harmless. That is, without the ability for someone to look at our life and to find fault, to find blame. That no one could point a finger at us and say, look, this, this person's a hypocrite. Look at this. They say this, but they do this. That's, that's the basic idea. Not without sin, because that's impossible, this side of heaven, with the flesh that we have, but that we would, in our best ability, be blameless, be free from accusation, that we would be harmless, which means innocent, children of God, without fault, in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Now, Paul's talking about first century Rome. It was crooked and perverse. And guess what? The 21st century America is crooked and perverse as well. It's nothing new. And it kind of strikes me funny when, when people say, you know, that we're living in the most difficult times ever to be a Christian. That's just patently untrue. I mean, the world has been crooked and perverse since the beginning. I mean, how long did it take Cain to pick up a rock and smash Abel in the head? Not, not long. You know, how long did it take uh, God to say he was so discouraged and disappointed with the people he created that he wanted to wipe them all off the earth? Seven chapters into the Bible. And how long after that was Sodom and Gomorrah one of the most crooked and perverse cities in the history of the world? Not long. And you go throughout the history of mankind and crookedness and perversion has been a defining theme. And it's certainly true today. We live in a, in a culture that is totally opposed to God we live in a culture and in a society that more and more with each passing year is becoming post-Christian. In, in the, the generation that I grew up in, probably the first generation to, to not grow up with any semblance of biblical values at all. And, and we still have a lot of baby boomers in, in and people even beyond that, alive on the earth today. So we still see some of those values and mores because they were ingrained and implanted in them. And they, by and large, are the thrust of evangelical Christianity today. But we are losing my generation. My generation grew up and saw a lot of hypocrisy, and they said, you know what? We don't want to have any part of that. And now the next generation, even more so. And that's why 8 out of 10 high school seniors totally bag the church after they graduate. I'm not saying it's all about hypocrisy. A lot of it's their own choice. But there's something that, that we aren't doing right in, in holding fast the word of life, in being shining lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. There's something that we're not doing here. Because if 
People saw that they would want it. Because studies, studies show that when you talk to people about Jesus, now understand that this is probably a Jesus of their own imagination. But be that as it may, when you talk to people about Jesus, they're open to Jesus. They're open to the, the idea and the concept of following Jesus. But when you start to talk to them about Christianity or Christians or church, that's when the walls go up. Now, what they don't understand is that Jesus and is the church. He's in the church. And, and they have to understand that, that you can't have Jesus apart from the church. Because when you have him in your life, you are the church. But like I said, despite that, people are open to Jesus, but for some reason they're closed off to the church. Why is that? I think it's because they haven't seen Jesus in the church. We have not been blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. We haven't been shining as lights in this world. And I think there again, here is a phenomenal resolution for us as a church corporately and as people individually that we would shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation in 2008. How is that going to look for you? starts without complaining and arguing. It starts with working out your salvation with fear and trembling, with allowing God to do his work in you, yielding yourself to him. And he says in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. And that word holding fast in the original language, it was a secular term that, that meant to hold out the wine at a celebration to just simply hold it out and people could partake of it or not. It was their choice. And I think that is a very freeing thing for us as Christians. You guys, we aren't called to go and to beat people over the head with the Bible or to bring people into some submission to seal the deal. I think too often... We think that in order for us to be successful shining lights, successful evangelists, that we need to seal the deal. That we've got to pray some kind of sinner's prayer with people. And you guys, I think that may have a lot to do with why we aren't having the impact we should on this culture and this society. Because I don't think people want to feel as if they're being sold something. Let Jesus work himself out in you. Hold fast the word of life, the gospel. Hold fast means to hold it out, to let people see it. And then if they choose to partake of it, they can. If they don't, then that's between them and the Lord. And God will do that work. But when we begin to berate people and to barrage people and to harass people and to make them feel as if all we want to do is seal the deal with them, they, that turns them off. What people need to see in us is Jesus. Not organized religion, not rules, not, hey, I want you to join my church. Not that we need anything from them. We're just holding fast the word of life. And if they want it, we're there to give it to them. And we're living it out before them. We're being Jesus to them. We're being the incarnational representation of Jesus in this context. Here in Prineville, in Crook County, in our workplaces, in our families, in our homes, and that we're being Jesus to these people. And you guys, when we do that, when we shine as lights, people will notice. You can't help but notice a light in the darkness. But if that light is offensive to you, 
And it's like in your eyeballs and you just want it out of your face. And sometimes maybe the darkness is better. And so we need to be just simply shining our lights, not being offensive in the way that we're doing things. Now, the gospel might offend people. The true Jesus, not the figment of their imagination, might offend people. And if that's the case, then so be it. But let's not let our presentation, let's not let our life be that which offends. See, that's what we get confused. People say, well, the gospel's offensive. Jesus is offensive. No, you're offensive, bro. That's the problem. It isn't the gospel at all that's offended. It's you. The way you're doing things, the way I'm doing things, the, the way that you're handling yourself, the, the way that you're screaming and yelling or the, the judgment that's coming forth from your life, that's what's offensive. If the gospel or the Bible or Jesus offends, then so be it. But let's not be that which offends. Let's let Jesus handle that part. Let's just be a shining light holding fast the word of life so that, as Paul says, I may rejoice in the day of Christ. He's talking about the rapture. That in the day of Christ, when we stand before him, we will not have run in vain or labored in vain. That we will be able to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's, that's what we long for. That's, that's what we're holding on to. And so, grow by shining. Man, I hope that as people that call Calvary Chapel their home, that in this community, we shine as lights in this dark place. This city needs Jesus. They don't need anything else. They need Jesus. And we can hold that out to them. We can be Jesus to them and give them the opportunity to invite Jesus into their hearts that we might rejoice, that we wouldn't run in vain. And the third thing, finally, in closing, is to grow by giving, verses 17 and 18. He says, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And so Paul finally says that if we want to grow, basically, we got to give our life away. We got to lay our life at the altar and say, Lord, consume me. Take me. Romans chapter 12, a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. God is no longer interested in bulls and goats and lambs and all of the death and the blood. Jesus shed his blood once for all. He's not interested in that. What God is interested in, though, is a living sacrifice where you say, Lord, here I am. Send me. Take me. I'm yours. And Paul gives the metaphor of the drink offering. Picture a a scalding white hot altar and then pour water on top of that altar and, and what would happen it would just dissipate right it would steam up it would bubble up it would be gone I remember when I was a kid one of my favorite things to do we had a wood stove in our house was to pour water on top of the wood stove and watch it just bubble up and disappear it would tick my dad off because it would leave these big white spots right but it was a lot of fun. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. Man, take that drink offering and imagine that as your life. Pour it on the altar and then it disappears. It's gone. And Paul knew that his life was about to come to an end. In fact, in 2 Timothy, he would use this same metaphor and he would tell Timothy, my time is, has come. I've finished my race. And my life has been a drink offering. In other words, I've given myself to the Lord and I have not even factored into the equation. People don't see me, they see Jesus. I'm gone, I've disappeared. 
Nobody is giving me the glory. You guys, that's what our lives ought to be, a drink offering, that we would give ourselves away. If we want to grow, it's by giving, giving our lives for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of others. That's what this book, Philippians, is all about, giving your life away, not being selfish, not being self-consumed, being a drink offering. Lord, what do you have for me today? Lord, I, I want to pour myself out on the altar. I want to disappear so that people can see you because I want to hold fast the word of life. Jesus, I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about you. Jesus, do your work in me and through me. Jesus, I, I, I've got a desire to grow. I want you to work out salvation in my life. And I want to offer myself to you. Again, what a phenomenal way to enter 2008. To desire to be a drink offering. To desire to be a sacrifice. To give your life away. I think that ought to be all of our resolution. That ought to be common amongst all of us. Yeah, we want to lose weight. Yeah, we want to organize the garage. Yes, we would like to, you know, clean up the spare bedroom. But more than all of that, more than saving money or getting into a home this year or whatever, more than all of that, our desire ought to be to give our lives away. To say, Lord, my life belongs to you. How do you want to use it? for your glory. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, we thank you for this uh, time in your word. Lord, I thank you, God, that you've written these things down for, for our admonition, that, Lord, we could grow, that we could read these things and be challenged in our own lives. Lord, I pray that these things would, would find soft and fertile soil in our hearts. That, Lord, these truths of your word, the seed that you've planted this morning, God, that it would go down, that it would find good soil, that the roots would penetrate, and that, Lord, it would produce fruit in our life. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.